2021 has been our year of becoming. And last week, we began a new series on becoming resilient. Resilience is the ability to withstand or endure adversity and to bounce back from difficult life events. And for this particular series, we've been grounding ourselves in a letter written by the Apostle Peter, and it was written to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. And one of, one of the themes of 1 Peter is endurance, is steadfastness, is resilience. Now, the fact that Peter wrote this letter way back then, you know, before cell phones and Twitter and COVID and Democrats and Republicans and all the things that cause problems in our lives, lets us know that life is hard and life has always been hard. Life has always been hard. The moment Adam and Eve messed up in the Garden of Eden, life became hard. And while it's not God's desire for life to be as hard as it is for us, and while he is, he's done the good work already so that life doesn't always have to be as hard as it is, the reality is until Jesus comes back and brings us back into the garden and brings us into the fullness of the kingdom, life is going to be hard. And so Peter writes this letter to a wide range of believers of all different backgrounds, and he basically says to them that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money you make or don't make, regardless of who you vote for, despite what toppings you like on pizza, some of y'all like pineapple, we're praying for you, uh, no matter who you are, life is hard. And just as a side note, this is why our default when we encounter people and engage with people needs to be gentleness, because no matter who you're engaging with, their life is hard. The person on your row right now that you don't know, as pretty as they look, their life is hard. My senior year of high school was a season for my family that was really really, really hard. It taught me about how hard life can be. When I was 17, a violent episode with my then stepfather prompted my mother to call the police. He didn't physically attack her, but he decided to punch a hole through my door, my bedroom door. And what prompted this reaction, you ask, someone, I will continue to plead the fifth, but someone <laughs> left the freezer door open in the garage and the Lakers had lost. And that combination of events prompted him to go upstairs past the two other bedrooms and punch down my bedroom door. And after seating my younger siblings down to witness his verbal assault on my mother, that's, that's exactly what he did. And what made this particular volatile episode different from his previous volatile episodes was that for the first time he was sober, which was actually more scary than when he was drunk. Well, the police responded three and a half hours later, and they encouraged my mother to file a conduct order. Now, a conduct order is the second cousin of the restraining order, uh, except the person doesn't have to leave, they just have to behave differently. And so my mother went down to the courthouse and she filed a conduct order. Life was hard. Shortly after that, on June 22nd, a 3,000-pound vehicle slammed at 60 miles an hour into the stationary vehicle that my mother and my siblings were in while they were sitting in traffic on the freeway. It totaled the vehicle. It banged up the family pretty bad. Life was hard. The very next day, on June 23rd, my grandfather served my then-stepfather the conduct order papers, and my 
father, stepfather responded with some choice verbiage to my mother about her intelligence and then flung the documents off the second store railing. Life was hard. On June 26th, three days later, we found out that we were going to have to move from our home that we had been living in and that we needed to find some place to live effective immediately. Life was hard. On June 28th, we had family court to discuss the conduct order, and the conduct order was granted by the judge, who then also said, by the way, he, my then stepfather, has a warrant for his arrest. And the bailiff immediately took him into custody. Life was hard. On June 29th, my mother could not find where my stepfather was being held. He was in jail somewhere, unbeknownst to us. And even though it was her legal right to know where he was, they would not tell her. So he's in jail somewhere that we don't know. We're in the midst of family court. The car was totaled. Bodies were injured. We're on the precipice of homelessness. And I was trying to figure out where I was going to go to college. Life was hard. I'm going to finish that story toward the end of the message, and that's also when I'm going to give you your fill in the blank, so hang tight for that. But what I need for you to know right now is that when I talk about resilience, it is from a deep place of understanding that life is hard and that being asked to be resilient when life is hard is even harder. And more importantly, that Peter understood that life is hard, but still he reminds us that his expectation for the believer, that his expectation as an apostolic leader, that his expectation as a pastor, as somebody who is recorded as having spoken more than anybody else in the Bible, whose name is mentioned more times in the New Testament than anybody else except Jesus, who Jesus is recorded having spoken to more than anybody else in the New Testament, he reminds us that his expectation for the believer is that we are resilient, steadfast, and unwavering, that we are able to bounce back even when life is hard. Peter says to the church, he says, church, life is going to be hard. And there are going to be trials, and they're going to come in all shapes and sizes. But he also reminds us, he says, but with God's hope, we get to make it through. And so Peter says, I expect you, believer, to be resilient. He tells us that because of what Jesus did, we can have hope. And that hope can carry us through our trials. And last week, Pastor Brian walked us through what it means to be resilient and hope. And he taught us that being resilient in hope is not about futile wishing, but it is about a sure confidence that we can make it through because God works based on his character. So he taught us that we can have hope in our trials simply because we are chosen by God. God has loved us and elected us and chosen us and that we are destined for good, that you and I have an incorruptible inheritance waiting for us. We are completely protected even as we face various trials. And the first half of 1 Peter 1 deals with being resilient in hope. Today, we're going to look at what it means to be resilient in holiness. We're going to look at the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1, which talks about, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> which talks about how our resilience in hope has to shape our behavior and our way of being. We're going to look at what it means to be resilient and holiness. And holiness is one of those church buzzwords that we throw around all the time, uh, but often don't have a good grasp on what it means. 
What does it mean to be holy? The word holy really means to be set apart, to be different, literally to be separate. And so when we describe God as holy, what we're actually saying is that, God, you are different and distinct from all things. We're saying there is nothing like you in all the earth, that your very nature is other, is perfectly right. Holiness is the word that we use to describe God's state of perfection, so perfect that it sets him in contrast with with everything else. And God's holiness is really kind of hard to grasp, right? Like we really don't have adequate language for it. And it is mysterious like so many other things about God. God is mysterious. He just is. I mean, you know, three persons in one, the Trinity, that's, that's mysterious. You know, being spirit but taking on mortal form, that's mysterious. Even, even the way that he is omnipresent, and everywhere all the time, but also like fully present in like my specific circumstance. Like that's, that's mysterious. And his holiness is mysterious in just the same way. Isaiah the prophet wrote about it like this. He said this in Isaiah 6, 1 and 4. He said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God's presence is so completely holy, set apart, different, and perfect, that even the angels closest in proximity to him have to hide their eyes in the presence of his goodness. And in this letter, Peter is saying to the believers that the goodness of God, that his character, his love, his perfection, his holiness gives us hope, which we are to be deeply committed to. But then Peter takes it another step further, and he says that that hope needs to shape the way we behave. Peter says God's perfection, his holiness, his set-apartness should also move us to be deeply committed to the transformation process of becoming holy, of becoming set apart, of becoming perfected. So your hope in Christ should move you to be like Christ. The evidence of your hope in Jesus should manifest in your way of being and behaving and interacting with the world around you. And a part of being resilient for the believer is that while life is hard, it does not change the core ways that we behave, act, and interact. So believer, um, we don't get to be jerks. Sorry. There are some other faiths that might be better for that. Christianity is not one of them. Just because life is hard does not mean you get to be rude and mean and dishonor others and mistreat other people. We don't get to do that. One of the things that has always marveled me about my mother is that despite all the hell her former husband put us through, she never mistreated him. She never talked bad about him. She never tried to get revenge, despite my many suggestions that she take a baseball bat to... Well, let me just stay on my notes. Let me stay on my notes. My, my mother modeled for me that our way of being does not change with the seasons. I am a follower of Christ 
365 days of the year. I always have hope in Christ, and so my behavior is the outspring of that hope. I am steadfast in the way that I act, and it's different. It's distinct. It's set apart from the rest of the world. When they go low, we go high. When they cuss, we pray. When, we f- when they fight, we worship. When they steal, we give. We are gentle. We are meek. We are humble. We are kind. They fight their battles on the backs of horses and with swords. We fight our battles on our knees and with scripture. We are resilient in holiness and being set apart and perfected by the Lord. How do we do that, pastor? Well, I was going to send y'all home and end the sermon right there, but since you asked, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. If you're in the ESV Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you, you're going to be on page 1014. 1014. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first word in our passage is the word, therefore, and it ties the scriptures that came before it with the scriptures that are coming after it, specifically the scriptures, uh, the verses that came before it, verses 3 through 12, which really highlight the believer's privilege in Christ. It is a privilege to hope in Christ. This is why when you don't feel like coming to church in the morning, you just ought to suck it up and drag yourself on down here because it is a privilege to hope in Christ. But Peter is also telling us that that privilege comes with responsibility. And that responsibility is to a particular behavior. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. In the New King James Version, verse 13 says, gird up your loin, the loins of your mind. And when he says that, Peter is drawing on this metaphor that pulls on the clothing that men wore in his day. They didn't have good britches like we got today. They wore robes. And before a man could get ready to do some strenuous work that required speed or effort, he would have to gather up his robes and tuck them under his belt lest he trip and fall. And Peter is drawing on that metaphor, and he's saying in the same way that you have to gather up your robes and tuck them under your belt before you take off running, you're going to have to gather up the thoughts of your mind. You're going to have to gather up your focus and bring it into captivity, because if you take off running and your thoughts are not gathered up, you will trip and fall. So Peter says, gather up your thoughts and prepare your mind for the work that holy living requires. And the way we do that, church, is by being self-disciplined in the mind. Peter writes, he says, being sober-minded. And sober is the opposite of being intoxicated. It is the opposite of overindulgence. It means to be free from illusion, from from non-godly intoxicating influences. And some of us really struggle with being holy with being set apart from the world because uh, we've been consuming too much of the world, because our mind is not, is not sober. We've overindulged on social media, consumed a little too much of that Reddit, watched a little too much of the news cycle, listened to a little too much of the gossip at work, and our minds are actually tipsy from overindulgence of the world. The word that we translate to, to, to mean sober 
is the Greek word nepho, and it literally means to be unintoxicated. It means to be temperate and to be self-controlled, to have one's wits and faculties gathered about themselves. And so anytime you find yourself having irrational, that means not logical, not reasonable thoughts, and the way you can tell if your thoughts are irrational is by triaging them, by comparing them to scripture and in community. This is why reading our Bibles and coming to church is important. Anytime you find yourself having irrational thoughts, you need to consider, am I tipsy? Have I been drinking a little too much of the world? Because if you want to be holy, if you want to be set apart, if you want to be like Jesus, believer, it's time to sober up. Now, I'm sure that all you good, saintly, holy people have never, ever in your life consumed a little too much alcohol. Uh, That is not my testimony, particularly in college. I'm thankful that social media wasn't as big then and there's no evidence of that. But when I was in college, when we would have a little too much to drink and we had to be in class at 8 a.m., they would always tell us, they say, if you're drunk, eat bread. And I would offer that to you today, believer, that if you are drunk off the world, if you have consumed a little too much of the world, eat bread. Consume the bread of life. Consume your scriptures. Make sure that there is time that you're spending with your Lord. And and I'll tell you, the first step that any good sobriety program will have you take is a detox. The methodical separation from that thing that you've been overindulging in. In the church, we call this a fast. And oh my, look at that. We just so happened to be in a 40-day and 40-night fast. And so maybe this is a real good time for you to pull away from some of those other influences of the world and sober up your mind. Peter says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, if your hope is not fully set on the grace of Jesus, holiness is not possible for you to attain. While there is still any part of you that is setting your hope on anything else, on your job, on your position, on your power, on your money, on your relationships, on your political candidates, while your hope is set on anything else other than the grace of Jesus, holy living is going to be a challenge for you. Peter tells us in verse 14 that fulfilling God's requirement for holiness requires that we as obedient children break off with the lifestyle of the world. What that means is you don't get to be like everybody else. You don't get to do what everybody else does. You don't get to live like everybody else. You don't get to behave like everybody else. You don't get to navigate the world like everybody else. You are required to be different. And here's the reality. That can actually cause us grief, right? When we look at the way the world can be, and it can look appealing, and it can look attractive, and it can look like, oh, I wish I could do that. I have been in spaces where I've seen people throwing back tequila shots, and they started to feel good. And I thought to myself, with all the stress in my life, that tequila show, doesn't the tequila look good? 
but I don't get to be like everybody else. I don't get to do what everybody else does. I'm a believer, so I have a different requirement, and so do you. And we get into trouble when we decide we only want to be a little bit different. We only want to be different in the ways that are convenient for us. But believer, that is not holiness. Holiness is being completely set apart. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that that means that we withdraw and avoid the world. But it does mean that we bring something different into the world. The Bible says we are to be salt and light. Salt has to touch something to bring it flavor. However, it does not become that thing. And so we have to bring something different into the world. And that is the main idea of holiness. It is not simply moral purity. But it is the idea of apartness, the idea that God is separate, is different, is distinct, both in his essential nature and in the perfection of his attributes. And what I adore about God is that God doesn't build a wall and separate himself in his holiness. But instead, he gives us a door named Jesus that we get to walk in and share and take part in his separateness and his perfection and his holiness. He says in verse 16, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. And when we fail to see God's apartness, we start to believe that he's just like a superman. Like, he's, he's just like us, except he's just, like, a little bit better. And that's problematic because it can make us think that the key to holiness is trying harder. But when you recognize that holiness, that actual holiness, that actual goodness, that actual love, actual moral rightness sits in the center and only in the center of who God is, then it stops being about, do I have enough good behavior? Do I have enough morality? And it stops being about what I have and starts being about letting God have me. Becoming holy is not about labor. It is about surrender. I'm going to say it again for somebody way in the back. Becoming holy is not about labor. It is about surrender. And that's real hard for us in the Western church because we place such a high value on personal autonomy, right? Like that's kind of what the whole American experiment is about is this idea that like I get to come and decide what happens in my life and I get to make my choices and I get to pursue my dreams and I get to and I get to and I get to. But that doesn't really work for holiness. It may work in a lot of other spaces in your life. It may work for career advancement. It may work for matriculating through college, but that doesn't work for becoming holy. Because if I am the boss, if I am in control, if, if I am running my life, I will never be holy. Because as we have already talked about, holiness is about God's set-apartness from everything else, including my own fallen nature, which means I, Judah, am not holy in it of myself. As good and moral as I try to be, I cannot actually produce goodness and morality because only God is good and moral. So the only way that I can actually become holy is to allow God to fully ingest me, to take me into himself, to allow God's substance, whatever that is made of, to swallow my substance and to trust 
that his substance, whatever that's made of, his nature, his essence, his presence is so efficacious that as it touches and consumes me and my substance, it will transform my substance into his substance until eventually I actually am Christ-like. I actually am Christian. I actually am holy and set apart and perfected. And that's going to take surrender. That's going to take taking our hands off the steering wheel. That's going to be hard for those of you with control issues. And Peter, in his brilliance, he understood that this was going to be difficult for even the best of us. And so he gives us motivation for doing this. He gives us the why in verses 18 through 21. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Y'all, this is our why. Why do I submit my life fully to God and allow him to transform my life and make it look like him? It's because he paid for my life. I give him what is already his. And if you're not there yet, if you're not in a fully submissive posture, it is not a behavior problem. It is a belief problem. Sin is always a belief problem. I think there are a lot of Christians who don't believe in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. We believe in it in a sort of principle, folk story sort of way. Folk stories are age-old tales that have some sort of magical element meant to teach us a lesson. But y'all, the crucifixion and the resurrection are not folk stories. They're not fairy tales. They're not metaphors or similes. They are historical facts. The crucifixion and the resurrection actually happened. The blood that he spilled for us was real blood. It was red. It had proteins and lipids in it. I don't know if he was B or O, but it was real blood that dripped down that cross and splashed into the dirt. There were real veins that were punctured and broken by the nails put through his wrist. This really happened, and I need you to believe Believe in the crucifixion and believe in the resurrection as a real thing that really happened that has real implications for you because it is the only thing that will motivate us to surrender in the way that we need to surrender because we will trust somebody who's willing to do that for us. We'll trust them enough to say, you know what, I will let you drive this car. We've got to believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Peter says that Jesus did this thing he says, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so as there are behaviors in your life that are inconsistent with the nature and the character of Christ, your prayer doesn't need to be, Lord, help me to behave. It needs to be, Lord, help me to believe. Because holiness, because right living is an issue of belief. 
And Peter says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So we see this juxtaposition between out-of-control passions and holiness. In verse 15, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, not just the conduct in public, not just the conduct when you come to church, not just the conduct when people are watching, but in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the lamb without blemish or spot. All right, so let's recap. We've talked about how holiness is how we describe God's absolute perfection and rightness, his morality, his nature, his character, his set-apartness. And we've talked about how we are called to be holy as he is holy, to be like him, to be completely set-apart, distinct, and different. And we've talked about how that can only happen through not more effort, but through submission to him and letting him swallow us up in himself and transform us into reflections of him and that this will manifest in our behavior in the world. Y'all still with me? All right. So when you think about holiness, when you think about holiness in real time, in the real world, here in the earth, in your life, what comes to mind for you when you think about holiness? Maybe it's not cussing people out. That's good. Maybe it's not getting drunk. That's good. Maybe it is only sleeping with your spouse. That's real good. Maybe it's being charitable or coming to church or reading your Bible. And all of that is good, but what I really want you to notice is that Peter only highlights one thing as the evidence for holiness. He only chronicles one result of holiness. Let's read verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, Peter says the one key piece of evidence of right living, of godly living, of holiness is loving one another. And all the other things that you think about when you think about what does it mean to be holy, when you think about I'm doing this because I want to be holy, I want to be righteous, I want to live like God, it all comes back to loving people. We do those things. We don't curse people out because we're trying to love them. We honor our marriage covenants because we're trying to honor our spouses. We behave in the ways that we behave as an act of love. Holy living always has to tie back into love. And there is a great danger and trying to define and execute holiness absent of love. Because good behavior absent of love is not holiness, it's legalism. And legalism is an appropriate believer. Legalism is you trying to prove something. What can you prove to somebody who hung on a cross for you? Legalism is you trying to earn something. What are you trying to earn that hasn't already been paid for? 
Holiness must always be steeped and saturated and soaked in love. And when I say love, I'm not talking about mush. What is love? Well, it's like God knew we would ask and gave us a whole passage of Scripture with the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always hopes. It always trusts. It always hopes and protects and preserves. What is love? Love is the behavior of God. And when Scripture describes that behavior, Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Ooh, I guess that means love is generous. Gave his only begotten son. Ooh, I guess that means love is sacrificial. Gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. Whosoever. I guess that means love is inclusive. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. I guess that means love is life-giving. And resilient holiness looks like a firm commitment to love regardless. I'm going to love regardless. My behavior, my attitude, the way I interact with people, the way I treat people, it's going to be loving regardless of the season. I want you to remember that this letter was written by Peter. Peter who, who never forgot the love Jesus showed him. The love Jesus showed him when he called him out of that fisherman's trade despite his qualifications or lack thereof. The love that Jesus showed Peter even when he denied him three times. The, the love that Peter showed Jesus, or Jesus showed Peter, even when Peter openly rebuked Jesus in public. Peter, how dare you? And yet, Jesus still showed him love. Jesus showed him love even when Peter let the enemy use him to tempt Jesus. Still, Jesus said, I'm going to love you regardless. I'm going to love you, come what may. I'm going to love you in whatever season that we're in. And Peter is saying to us that resilient holiness looks like love. A love for God and a love for his people. Jesus said, love God and love people. And on these two hang all the law and all the prophet. What does Pastor Lance always ask us? Does all mean all? Jesus says, on these two hang all the law and all the prophet. And Peter says that resilient holiness looks like a daily submission to Jesus and allowing him to take us deeper into himself and transform us and purify us and shape us and build us and call us out and call us in and make it so that every day, we start to look more and more like our Father. Every day we start to behave more and more like our Father so that every day we start looking less and less like our broken and tainted selves. That is what resilient holiness looks like, church, and it's your fill-in-the-blank. Resilient holiness is submission in love. 
Resilient holiness is submission and love. That is what right living looks like. Looks like submission and love. Now, I told you that I was going to finish my story that I began with at the beginning of the message. And when I, when I left off, it was June 29th, and my then stepfather had been arrested, and we were in the middle of family court, and my mother couldn't find him, and her car had been totaled, and her body was still recovering from that, and we had no home. And through all of that, my mother was resilient to holiness. She was resilient to the submission and loving of God and people. Even trash ones like her husband, I mean ones that God is still working on, like her, like her former husband. On July 1st, we miraculously got a house. My mama didn't know where that $5,000 it was going to cost to move us was going to come from. And she still didn't know where her husband was. And she was stressed and she was scared, and she was holy because Christ is holy. And she pressed, in, she pressed into who he is. She continued to lean into who our God is. July 12th is my mama's birthday, and long story short, my mama was able to walk away from that unhealthy situation with her then-husband. Thank you, Jesus. And I didn't have to go to prison for that to happen. Thank you, Jesus. The car insurance claim came through for us. We moved into a new home, and, and I went to college. And eventually, God brought her a healthy, God-fearing man, and he can cook. Thank you, Jesus. He can cook. That curry chicken is something. Hallelujah. I thank God for the chicken. And they got married, and they would eventually go on to adopt two children and get another house. And, and you know what? Life is still sometimes hard for her. But my mother's character, her conduct, it never changed. Through Christ, she didn't allow the circumstances around her to change the core of her behavior. She never once to this day badmouthed her ex-husband. She didn't badmouth the man who wasn't paying attention on the road and slammed into her vehicle, could have killed her and her children. She didn't badmouth the housing company that had taken our money and then took our house. She didn't badmouth the people who were working at the county jail who wouldn't tell her where her husband was. She didn't let her circumstances move her to becoming intoxicated by things of the world, even her own emotions. My mother prayed more in that time than probably any other time in her life. And she submitted to God. She didn't want to have to walk away from her husband, but she submitted to God. She didn't want to have to walk away from her house, but she submitted to God. And she allowed God to continue to transform her heart and her life. And she placed her hope in Jesus. Her hope was resilient, and therefore her holiness was resilient. You've got to look your situation in the face and say, you don't get to change how I am. You don't get to tear me away from my Jesus and what he wants from me. If the whole world is going to hell in flames right now, it doesn't get to change how we 
behave. My mother never changed. And I don't say that to hype her up. I mean, she's all right, but <laughs> she, she simply followed the model of Jesus. Y'all, Jesus' life was hard. It was unfair. I mean, absolutely unjust. The first trial they had for him before the crucifixion was an illegal trial held in the middle of the night. His life was hard and it was unfair and he was perfect. And yet all the mistreatment of hell was lobbied against him. But he is the perfect model of how you and I are to respond to hard life. He hung up on that cross and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know how I would have been cussing them Roman soldiers out? And how did, you better hope I don't ever get off this cross. I swear I'll beat you down, you know? <laughs> but not Jesus. His heart was to pray for them to love them. He is the model of how you and I are to respond to hard life. He is the model of what right living looks like when life is hard. And in and through submitting to him, your belief will grow and your heart will be transformed until it becomes holy like his, set apart like his, perfected like his, and all of your behavior will follow that and gush forth like a spring of love. Resilient holiness is your portion, believer. Jesus did it. Peter did it. My mama Kairos did it. And you can do it. Be holy as I am holy resiliently holy, unwaveringly steadfast enduring and holy. My spiritual father, Bishop Parnell Lovelace, is notorious for ending his sermons with a song. When he teaches us how to preach, he says, you can never go wrong with that. And if he were here today, he would say this. He'd say, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Mm. Holiness is what I need. He would say, holiness, holiness is what you want from me. So take my heart and mold it. Take my mind. Take my will, transform it to yours, to yours, O oh Lord. Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer, that you would take all of us and transform us. We want to be holy as you are holy but we cannot do it in and of ourselves. And so, Father, we on purpose take our hands off the steering wheel and say, you be the driver, Jesus. And wherever you take the vehicle of life, we will go. Father, we give you 
who we are, and we ask that you would consume us so that we can look like you. We can be mirror reflections of you. We want to be the Imago Dei. So, Father, help me and my friends here to lean into resilient holiness. Help us to be consistent in our submission and love to you, come what may. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.